In fact, it sounds to me like you can hear me all too well, so I apologize for that. Uh, my name is James Perry, and uh, because this is the first session of the morning, let me just say this is institutional investment and community involvement in the interpretation of slavery. So if that shocks and horrifies you, feel free to slink out now and find your panel. Um, as I say, I'm James Perry. I'm from the Tracing Center on Histories and Legacies of Slavery. So this is squarely on point with our mission. Um, if you're interested more about us, we actually have a booth in the exhibit hall, booth 217. Um, and one of the things that we've got there uh, is information about the book that we have coming out uh, from Roman and Littlefield at the end of the year. The book is Interpreting Slavery at Museums and Historic Sites. It's edited by Kristen Gallus and by me. Um, our contributors include two of our three members of this session here, and they'll explain what they've written about. Um, but they've written the chapters on institutional investment and community involvement. So um, what we've done is we've organized three panels uh, at ASLH this year around themes of the book. This is the first of these three panels. Um, we've got a couple of our other contributors here in the audience, and I'll, I'll let them introduce themselves if they want to make questions or comments as we go along this morning, but we're very pleased to have them here as well. Um, what I'd like to do is uh, first give you a word of warning about how the session is set up, and uh, then we can let uh, everyone else up here introduce themselves. Um, the session is being audio recorded, and so what that means is first we're going to need to be very careful up here to speak into this microphone, and we're going to have to pass it along, which may interfere a little bit with the flow of conversation, but hopefully not too much. It also means that as you all get a chance to ask questions and make comments, and we very much want to make that a part of the session and not leave that that for a couple of minutes at the end. Uh, we're going to need to pass around a wireless mic, uh, so we're going to try to be good about doing that. Uh, but this also obviously means that your words will be recorded and potentially heard by other people, so please bear that in mind if you want to do that. Um, that said, uh, I mentioned that I'm from the Tracing Center, uh, and we do programs to educate the public about the history of slavery and race and to facilitate dialogues about what that means today for issues of uh, healing and racial justice. Uh, our big focus is to try to help people appreciate that we have a lot of myths in this country about the history of slavery. As bad as we understand it to have been as a historical event and an institution, uh, we do underplay it in many ways. That's true in the South, but that's especially true in the North and the Midwest and the West, uh, where the extent of our involvement in slavery, our complicity in slavery, the extent to which it shaped the course of this country's history is dramatically underplayed. And so that's a big theme for us at the Tracing Center. And it's a big challenge when it comes to the interpretation of slavery. Um, my full name is James DeWolf Perry. And I say that because I'm a direct descendant of James DeWolf, who was the leading slave trader in the history of the United States. Uh, he was based out of Rhode Island and made his hometown of Bristol, Rhode Island, by far the leading slave trading port in the country's history. And it's a very good example of the ways in which uh, many of us in this country, again, especially outside the South, tend to have repressed our memory of just how important slavery was to the nation's history. And that's the kind of challenge that really, uh, I think, underpins the work that we're doing on a panel like this. 
um, we actually created a PBS documentary about the history of our family called Traces of the Trade, uh, and that's what got start, me started in this work. Uh, and so, like I say, I think that's a, a real illustration of the kinds of challenges that we're facing that we don't even know history like that, and it's very surprising to audiences when they find out about it. So with that said, what I'd like to do is allow each of the panelists to introduce themselves. Uh, I do a lot of public speaking, and I really hate it when people feel the need to uh, give a mini-biography of me as they introduce me. So I, that's why I'm going to be strategic and let them do that themselves. There's actually someone here in the audience who will be hosting me in Virginia next week for a couple of events, and so hopefully she's listening to that about not needing to do a big formal introduction of me. So that said, let's hear from our uh, speakers. Thank you. My name is Dina Bailey, and I am the Director of Interpretation and Education at the National Center for Civil and Human Rights, which is a new institution. We just opened in Atlanta, Georgia. We've been open about two months. Before that, I was the Director of Museum Experiences at the National Underground Railroad Freedom Center. And so with both of these missions, um, I talk about history, I talk about the past, but I also talk about the present and the future. That goes with both of our missions. So they are both very advocacy-minded, very active. Um, we want to, for example, at the Center for Civil and Human Rights, empower people to take the human rights of everyone personally. And so with that kind of very forward-focused mission in mind, then we kind of go back and forth in time to look at these different challenging topics. And so my point on being on the panel um, deals with community involvement plans and how you bring in your community, uh, whether you are speaking to slavery, as I did at the National Underground Railroad Freedom Center, or you're speaking to other topics like civil and human rights, as I'm doing in Atlanta. Thank you and good morning. It's great to see everybody today. My name is Scott Stroh. I'm the executive director at Gunston Hall in Mason Neck, Virginia. How many people have been to Mason Neck, Virginia? Yes, thank you. Uh, if you're not aware, Gunston Hall is the plantation home of George Mason, um, one of the individuals involved in the revolutionary colonial period and the founding era. Uh, quite not, not quite as well known as the house where my colleague to the right works, but. Um, and just very briefly, uh, rather than say a whole lot more about myself, one of the th I've been at Gunston Hall for a year and a half, um, and we are very early in our process of exploring, building community support, uh, getting the investment and the buy-in we need uh, to explore this topic and this issue much more deeply. Um, Mason wrote the Virginia Declaration of Rights. He first wrote that all men are born equally free and independent. Yet he was an extremely uh, large slaveholder and, and a gentleman who was not known uh, to be uh, uh, in any way, shape, or form compassionate in his treatment of slaves. In addition, um, his grandson wrote the Fugitive Slave Act or was one of the authors. Uh, and then after the Civil War, when the Mason family no longer owned Gunston Hall, it became the location of a school. A gentleman from Wisconsin founded a school to educate newly freed African Americans, uh, paid them a living wage, sold them property, established a school for them. Um, and with that broad context, we're really looking at exploring this evolution um, of how we interpret and explore African American history in the broader context of Gunston Hall and its history as a place associated with Mason uh, through a broader continuation of time on up through this, this school. Um, 
I'm very honored to be part of this panel and uh, look forward to discussion with all of you. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. My name is Linnea Grimm. I'm the Director of Education and Visitor Programs at Monticello, Thomas Jefferson's home in Charlottesville, Virginia. And the department that I oversee is a very broad department. Uh, sometimes people hear education, think only school groups. We are really thinking about the learning environment for everyone who comes on site. Monticello, as I think everyone here in the audience knows, is absolutely connected to slavery, as is Thomas Jefferson. And so that means a large part of my job is working with all of the frontline staff and thinking about how we interpret slavery to about 430,000 people who visit us every year. I was excited to become involved with the project here um, with James and Kristen and work a lot on um, thinking about and researching institutional support for the interpretation of slavery. And Scott kindly agreed to be interviewed last, I guess it was last year after only being on the job a few months um, for being part of the chapter that I wrote um, for the book. And I also uh, worked with Phillipsburg Manor, um, which is part of Historic Hudson Valley. Is anyone here from Historic Hudson Valley? Okay. I did one of these sessions before, and somebody towards the end raised their hands. I went, oh, Lord, I'd love to have you talk about your site, because, of course, I only got glimpses through interviews. Um, Gunston Hall, uh, Mount Vernon, and Monticello, and really looking at how... How do you get beyond doing one or two programs, exhibitions, but really making a sustained cultural change to if your site has relevancy to slavery, how do you really incorporate that as you um, go throughout your work? All right. Thank you all so much. We're going to have a little trouble with this cord up here, but we'll make do. Thank you all so much. As you can hear, we've got a very highly experienced group of people up here with an awful lot to say about this topic. That said, we are all of us, and I, I'm sure I can speak for all four of us, uh, acutely aware that really as a field we're beginning, and unfortunately only beginning the process of really grappling with the interpretation of slavery, with the unique challenges that this subject brings. And of course, during the course of this, it will be clear that there are a lot of ways in which this applies to other uh, difficult or challenging uh, or less than mainstream, less than traditionally mainstream histories uh, in this country. Uh, we're aware that we're just beginning a conversation in this field, and so with that in mind, what we want to do here today is not offer presentations, but instead have something of a conversation in which we suggest ideas, uh, we raise questions, and hopefully engage with all of you, and we're very interested to hear not just what questions you have for us, uh, but as well what kinds of comments you have, what kind of experiences perhaps you bring or issues you've been wrestling with, whether you've been successful with them or not. Uh, we've been very clear to highlight in the book things that are both uh, success stories and things that are not so successful, and we think that that's an important part of the learning process for all of us. Uh, before we get started, I would just finally like to say I had mentioned that um, Kristen and I are the editors of this book, Interpreting Slavery, uh, and that these panels are organized around themes in the book. And so I wanted to say one thing about the framework that Kristen and I provided in the book. Um, we believe that very often when it comes to even understanding the basic question of why it is so challenging in this country to interpret slavery, why it's hard to get the support to do it, why it's hard to do it in practice, all too often we've taken the easy road to understanding that challenge. In other words, we say things like, slavery is traumatic history. This is bad history. This was violent. 
And that's why it's hard to talk about or hard for an institution to decide to take on or take on well or make central to its mission. And certainly that's true and that's a challenge, but we don't believe the inherent violence of the history itself is the biggest challenge. Other times I think people turn to the fact that this is in many ways unhealed history today as a reason why it's difficult to talk about. And again, there's some real truth to that. This is painful unresolved history and for different visitors, for different members of an institution's staff and other constituencies, that fact can be challenging. It can cause hesitation or discomfort. But there's yet another reason, and we think it's important that we keep digging down to find out what's going on with interpreting slavery so that we can best address its challenges. And the framework we lay out in the book is the idea that, and I apologize for the noise behind us if you can hear that as well as I can, the framework we lay out in the book suggests that for most people, historical narratives are at the core of their identities. Their group identities as members of a family, a local community, a demographic group, a state or region, even the nation as a whole. And these historical narratives, while they may be dimly understood, are very important and central to our identities. And for most Americans, especially for white Americans, historical narratives have to do with subjects like freedom and free labor, the value of hard work. You notice this is starting to hint at how we got where we are and why we're as successful as we are, why we have what little piece of the pie we have. Free labor, hard work, entrepreneurship, skill, perhaps luck, anything but enslavement. And even though slavery doesn't play an explicit role in these historical narratives for many Americans, Nevertheless, slavery is, is very much a part of them in its absence. The idea that slavery did not play a part in my family's getting where it is today, which is what I used to believe. Or I'm from New England, the idea that it didn't play a role in New England getting where it is today. And so raising the fact that slavery was not just present in our country's history, but that it went beyond a small number of wealthy slave-owning families and was something a tremendous number of families were connected to, involved in, benefited from is extremely discomforting to people because that undermines those narratives at the core of their identities. And in a nutshell, that means that when we interpret slavery, we can expect to pose tremendous cognitive and emotional challenges to people. This is about head and heart at the same time. And one thing we try to do in the book is unpack what that means in terms of the nature of the process that learners will go through and to provide concrete advice as to what, therefore, you can do, understanding the process they're going through, how long it needs to be, the stages they need to move through. And especially relevant to the panel this morning is the idea that because there are all of those challenges, and because it's central to the identities of all of us, that's going to be a challenge not just for your visitors, but for staff, for board members, for other constituencies. And so there's a process that has to go on there that goes far beyond what you might do if you decided to do a major new focus on the interpretation of, I don't want to pick on any particular topic, but the furniture in a historic home. Board members, for example, who don't know a lot about furniture and maybe roll their eyes at the idea, nevertheless can learn things because that's not challenging who they are as people. And the interpretation of slavery in some surprising ways, we believe, does do that. And so that says something about the magnitude of the challenge. And I think all too often our public hi history institutions in this country um, haven't had the support 
both inside and outside, to take on that kind of challenge to be able to do the interpretation of slavery and to do it well. So really we wrote this book in order to be able to start stepping up our game as a field, to be able to think more deeply, more creatively, and to be able to share practical tips, practical advice and techniques for taking on these challenges. And we really hope that this book and this panel uh, this morning will help start a conversation that will go well beyond the information that we're actually able to convey today. We think that's a challenge that's well needed. With that said, um, let's turn to some of our questions that we'd like to talk about this morning. And the first of these is about the importance of the topic of the history of slavery and what I was just talking about, the particular cognitive and emotional challenges that talking about slavery and interpreting slavery raise. What about these issues makes it harder to tackle the interpretation of slavery and what opportunities there may there be in both the importance of slavery and in the particular challenges and the particular way that visitors and others are challenged by talking about this history. Is there someone who'd like to start and talk a little bit about this? Okay. Thanks so much. Man, I wish I had heard that eight years ago. <laughs> what you just said so beautifully is the lesson that I've learned over the eight years of being at Monticello. And I came into Monticello with a history background, academic history background. And with an academic history background, you look at your sources, you evaluate your sources, you are doing all the analysis, statistics. And then we had this instance where we had a group of um, folks from the Federal Executive Institute come and visit us. And probably about half African-American, half white, they left infuriated with Monticello and how we were interpreting slavery. And I was taken aback. I thought, but we put so much time and investment into what we're doing. And we're, we're, we try to be so careful and, and, and think through presenting all that good historical information went, went wrong. And they actually invited us to have a feedback session. Talk about a challenging place to be with about 50 very angry people staring at you going, how could you do this? And it was, that was really a watershed moment for me because it went back to the emotion and starting to realize how significant the emotion is for people as they're coming to our sites and understanding what we're doing was absolutely critical to how I then began thinking about interpreting slavery. And that people's emotions are going to vary. I mean, that's a simplistic statement, but for some reason it took me a, a long time to really process what that meant for my work. So some people who come to Monticello are going to see it as a site of atrocity. And that's not the way I was raised. I was raised Monticello. This is uh, this amazing house that reflects the genius of Jefferson. And just having that kind of aha moment of, but this is going to represent, if it's a site of enslavement, which it was, it's going to represent different things to different people. And we have this challenge of then balancing what Jefferson did, that he wrote the Declaration of Independence that is so important to civil rights uh, history, but yet it's also a site of enslavement. And so I think it was that real aha of it's the, it's the emotion. And you can't discount that. I had to kind of turn off my academic history brain and go, okay, so how, how do we start working with that? And to add to that, I think that sometimes we also forget our emotional state. So as Linnea was saying, 
whether we believe it's academic or whether we believe that our personal history has nothing to do with it, sometimes we forget the emotional load that we are carrying or, or we don't understand that emotional load as well. And so before you talk about slavery with other people, before you talk about any of these challenging topics, you really have to look internally and say, okay, how do I feel? What do I know? And then be open to that as you move forward. Because I also think, as we're talking about these narratives, that people sometimes don't realize their trip points either. So you could think internally, okay, I've got this. I understand how I feel. And then you sit in a room with 10 other people, and they're bringing all of their personal perspectives and all of a sudden you're like oh oh no and you didn't realize that there was a tripwire there either and so I think one it's understanding your current understanding of who you are based on this challenging history right and why it's challenging because I believe that it's challenging to everyone and that's okay it should be challenging to everyone and it's an opportunity for us to, to grow as individuals and being open to that. I just want to touch briefly on some, just one of the difficulties that relates to this that, that we've had at Gunston Hall over time. I'm pleased to very, I'm pleased to say at this point we're in a great place uh, and we're moving forward with full support of our board and, and, and looking forward to doing some great things. But that's not always been the case at Gunston Hall. One of the challenges that we've experienced since our founding uh, back in 1952 is balancing the desire of the organization to raise the profile of George Mason uh, with acknowledging the narrative of slavery and the African-American presence at Gunston Hall. This is, uh, George Mason is an individual who is not as well known as many of the other uh, founders in Virginia. In fact, our enabling legislation set us up as a memorial and monument to George Mason. So how do you do that while acknowledging that he owned over 300 slaves, um, that he frequently advertised in all the local papers to get his runaways back, that he petitioned the Commonwealth of Virginia for reimbursement when slaves he owned uh, were involved in a crime and executed. Um, it's a tough challenge as an organization to reconcile this. And what we've tried to do is to, uh, so the lesson out of this has been that um, not to put any one person above the narrative. And if we're going to talk about people, we need to do so in the context of relationships. And the relationships are so fundamental to us as individuals, us as community, um, uh, to the humanity of any narrative. And we can't talk about George Mason in this case without acknowledging the broader network of relationships he had, uh, many of which involved um, relationships with other slave owners as well as with slaves. Uh, and other indentured servants on its property. So we've, we've tried to make uh, this connection that relationships are fundamental to people and the narrative of these relationships uh, is what is most important for us to explore. Um, also in terms of emotion, and you asked I think about opportunities with emotion as well. It means that people want to talk about it. You don't get people who are so emotionally invested, and I come from a material culture background, so keep this in, but most people aren't so emotionally invested in the chairs, right? 
Um, but people are emotionally invested in this topic, which I think is such a huge opportunity because it means they want to have discussions. Some of them want to have discussions. Some of them just want to express their, their feelings, but it, it really comes to the core of why we're relevant. And I wanted to quickly share, um, because he's not here in the audience, Waddell Stillman, who's the executive director for Historic Hudson Valley um, and speaks quite eloquently on the um, topic. When I was interviewing him, this is a quote that he said about the emotional impact. Um, he said, this is tough stuff which ought not to be taken lightly. The rest of social ills that derive from slavery and the depths of this problem in American culture today are not to be underestimated. And that's the vein you're tapping. If you don't catch on to that and don't seek to channel your determination with grace and humanity, then I think you run the risk of just being controversial and flaming out. Thank you so much. One theme that's really run through our work on all of these different topics having to do with the interpretation of slavery is this question of challenge and opportunity. The fact that we can often play with the challenges involved, and while they are definitely challenges, they can also be turned into opportunities. Um, I don't work at a historic site, but having spent many years taking our film out to audiences across the country, um, and again, this is a film that looks at a northern families and therefore the North's involvement in slavery in a very powerful and personal way because you see uh, ten DeWolf descendants going across the triangle trade, learning their family's history, and talking about what it means to them as DeWolf descendants and as Americans today. It's a very powerful way to get into this very challenging topic. And you know, certainly one of the things I see is how emotional it is and how difficult it is for many people to talk about. Um, but also how much of an opportunity it can be once you reach the point where people are engaged. Some will engage right away. Um, I really appreciated this theme that there's a lot of difference in how people respond. Some of that is a question of whether people are white, whether they're African-American, whether they're of other racial or ethnic backgrounds. Um, but part of it is just where individual people are coming from. And one thing I don't think was, was mentioned here is that, of course, you're going to get a lot of visitors. And again, I'm largely talking white visitors, but definitely not exclusively, who will on the surface be saying they don't have a strong response to this, that it's not a particularly emotional topic for them, that they're not particularly interested in it. It can be very dismissive, and I'm sure most of you can really appreciate that. Um, but I can tell you from having worked with a lot of audiences with the film that much as with interpretation, if you can get people for a few minutes, you can very quickly get past that surface veneer, and they're is going to be a real interest in this topic. It will be painful and challenging how they're responding to it initially, but there's a lot that's there. Um, one issue that I think was, was also edging very close here was the question of, again, how racial identity uh, is going to be a big piece of how people are responding differently to these challenges. And so with that in mind, I'm just going to very quickly say that while our focus this morning is on institutional uh, and community aspects of this, and we want to talk about some very specific issues there, um, we do have the second of our panels this afternoon at 1.30, and that's specifically devoted to looking at questions of race and racial identity in the interpretation of slavery and other histories where race is relevant. So um, we're going to do that at 1.30 um, if you're interested in that topic specifically as well. Um, what I'd like to do at the moment is turn us to another kind of way in which uh, you're going to get different experiences and responses to the interpretation of slavery. And that's a question of the nature of the particular site that you're at. There are a couple of potential aspects to this. Where is your site located? By and large, a southern site will face very different challenges talking about the interpretation of slavery than a site in the Northeast. 
or a site in the Midwest. Now, that's not to say that sites in the South won't vary a great deal as well. You may be at a plantation, you may be at a home in Charleston, which will have a very different relationship to the interpretation of slavery. But I'm from Boston, and our sites that talk about slavery face very different challenges. If you're here in Minnesota, where there was slavery, talking about slavery poses even different challenges, I think. That's a regional question. There's also, I think, the question of what the nature of a site's particular story is. Is the relationship of the site to slavery a direct one? Is it indirect? Is it a story that's long been known or that's been hidden until recently? Is there material culture at a site that in an obvious way helps tell the story of enslavement or is there not and therefore there's a challenge there as well? So with those kind of differences in mind, I'm wondering if we can talk a little bit about the nature of a particular site's challenges and how that may affect what you need to do with the interpretation of slavery. Is there anyone who would like to take that on? Okay, Dina. I'm just going to start again very quickly. So our chapter did go through a variety of sites, and James and Kristen really wanted us to make sure that we got you know, somewhere from the north, somewhere from the Midwest, somewhere from the south, so that we were having that conversation. Um, But to get back to kind of where I have personally been, both in Cincinnati and Atlanta, I think one of the interesting aspects that I can bring to this is that neither one of these places is a historic site itself. You know, the history didn't happen right there. However, the history happened around that place. Um, So with Cincinnati, when we're talking about the Underground Railroad, people were literally coming across the river right in front of where the museum is. When we're talking about the Center for Civil and Human Rights, we're just a couple of blocks from Auburn Avenue. You know, all of the history is in that space. And so I think we have a really interesting opportunity where we're not getting that immediate emotional connection because it didn't happen right there. But then we have the opportunity to kind of be more of a a safe haven also because it didn't happen right there, um, but it's still within the idea of, of the area, the identity of the area. One of the specific challenges that we've had at Gunston Hall to this point is um, the lack of information and evidence supporting uh, who the slaves were, how they lived, what they did, where they were even located. Um, we have spent years doing archaeology to better understand uh, the gardens, uh, where uh, 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 different Mason family features were located. It's only been recently that we've begun to more formally explore archaeologically where slave dwellings were located, um, and we have found some wonderful stuff. It has been a very a difficult challenge for us as an organization over time to reconcile the point by which we feel we know enough to present an accurate authentic story, an accurate authentic narrative uh, with uh, a, a compelling desire and need and moral imperative to tell this story. And I would imagine that many of you uh, have wrestled with this or uh, can understand this. And ultimately, um, we've gotten to the point where Uh, and some of this is written in some of the chapters in the book, we've gotten to the point as an organization where the moral imperative to tell the story has trumped uh, uh, a perceived lack of information. 
Um, that's not to say we don't have information. We do have information. It's not a blank slate. We're not making things up. We're not inventing. Uh, but in, in the absence of information in the past at Gunston Hall, uh, things have been made up. You know, I'm perfectly willing to acknowledge that. Um, there, there is a, a completely fake footprint supposed to articulate, supposed to express the size of what a slave dwelling would have been. It's not accurate. It's not where there would have been slave dwellings. It's uh, an attempt, and it's and the great thing is I shouldn't probably say great thing. The thing is, it's it's um, it's like a like a one by two piece of wood laid on the ground. So if the grass isn't really down low, you can't even see it anyway. Um, uh, and 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 you know that's just one one example but we've gotten to the point where we 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 feel as though the moral imperative to tell this story with what we know authentically and accurately but being open to the fact that we don't know everything to tell that story not only in the context of the specific historical narrative but to tell the story in a way that makes it very clear this is an ongoing educational process of learning and that this learning process will continue no matter how much we find at this particular juncture that part of Part of the process of interpreting this narrative is the acknowledgement that it's a constantly evolving uh, process of understanding for us as an organization, for us as uh, our community, and for us as our guests. So we want to piggyback those two things together um, and not, we, not wait or put it on hold indefinitely until we have reams of data and buildings full of artifacts that we've dug up uh, that we feel we've now got this, now we can go. I think for Monticello and a lot of sites in the South, um, it's the assumption of knowledge that a lot of our visitors come with. They think they know first how we're going to treat slavery, which is fascinating because what they think could run the whole gamut. You know, oh, Monticello is not going to touch that, you know, because they're, they're thinking we're either descendants or we are a memorial organization. Um, or they think, oh, I've heard something in the news. They're, you know, only going to talk about slavery and defile Jefferson. And so they come in with these very strong feelings. If they don't come in with those, they already have very strong assumptions and images in their mind of what slavery was like in the South. And we actually begin our slavery at Monticello tours by asking guests what images come to mind when you think about slavery. And that way is a good way to just start getting visitors to talk about, you know, are they thinking about cotton? Are they thinking deep south? Are they thinking antebellum? And it's a great way of starting saying, yes, that's all part of slavery. We're going to talk about what we know specifically here on the Monticello plantation. And I think that's probably one of the greatest challenges for those sites in the south is that people are coming with so much um, information that they perceive um, that they've gained um, through their time. And then our challenge is, and again, this is a transformation I've had, rather than going, oh, no, 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 but we're one of the best documented plantations in the South, let me tell you all about this, is working with them where they're coming from. And I think to that point, um, deciding how much and what 
you're telling, right? That's always part of what we do in terms of the complexity. So are you at a historical site where you're saying, I'm only going to say exactly what happened at this place? Or do I need to branch out a little bit and talk about the, the national story or the regional story? So how much are you telling? And I think that's something that, that we have struggled with um, as we're thinking about this book, but also at each of our institutions. And for me, being at, at two national institutions, you know, am I telling too big of a story? Do I need to get back down into the local story? Do I need to balance that out? And so I think for, for anyone who's interested in this topic, again, really being comfortable and clear in saying, this is what we're going to talk about and being kind of unapologetic about that you know like yes and this is what I'm talking about at my site here are some resources to talk about the bigger idea but I need to talk about the information that I know about where I am it's one of the challenges as the tracing center goes out and does staff trainings at historic sites and this sort of thing providing people with the historical context to be able to do their interpretive job well even for guides who have a script to follow, understanding the context so they don't get in trouble the moment they're asked a question is tremendously important. But then encouraging a process whereby the interpretation is specific enough uh, that it's not trying to do too much and straying too far. It's a, it's a real tough balancing act. Uh, I'm going to keep us moving through a couple of topics, but there's a lot that we could be saying on these issues, so shortly we'll turn to you all for a couple of questions and comments in case there are areas you'd like to really drill us down into or hear more about. Um, but for the moment, I'd like to ask this, which is how is it that institutions can go about the process of building support internally? How do you build support as an institution for the interpretation of slavery among your board, among staff members? other institutional constituencies. What are some of the particular challenges? So I thought one of the interesting um, ideas that I learned from talking with Waddell Stillman at Historic Hudson Valley was the way they went about it. He knew he wanted to interpret slavery. However, when he wanted to start doing that was shortly after the slave auction interpretation at Colonial Williamsburg. Um, and his board of directors was very much paying attention. There were a lot of connections between Colonial Williamsburg and Historic Hudson Valley, and they were paying attention to that. And he was trying to figure out, how do we go about this with a board that's already a little spooked? They, didn't, they knew they weren't such a prominent site, and what would happen if they got this type of really negative publicity about some interpretation of slavery? So again, I think he took a very thoughtful approach to how he was going to start. And one of the ways they identified was um, first doing their homework and then going and getting a, a NEH grant. And it's amazing with the board of directors, that type of approval from an outside funding source all of a sudden helped them feel much more comfortable about the process. I would say that whether, whether it's a challenge of interpreting a topic like slavery or any other difficult topic. What I've experienced uh, at other positions and here at Gunson Hall is that our ability to build organizational support internally for this is directly linked and inseparably linked to the organizational culture of the organization. If your organization in its entirety is not ready 
or able for whatever reason to embrace change, uh, to be comfortable with disciplined risk, and to be open to a new way of pursuing any subject matter, it's going to be a challenge. Um, in our case, uh, the, the real impetus to begin this process at Gunston Hall began before I got there as part of a very large uh, organizational transformation. Um, the board uh, understood that it needed to change uh, from a more operationally oriented board to a more strategy, governance, and fundraising oriented board. This led into a process of change at the board level that enabled them to become the type of board that was open to doing things in new ways. Uh, this transformation is what uh, resulted in a change in leadership, uh, a change in other aspects um, related to the composition of the staff and the organization of the staff. And although our process of transformation and organizational, the evolution of organizational culture is ongoing as it is anywhere, those foundational, fundamental, internal, sort of visceral changes within the organization are ultimately what has created a culture that is open, that is more open, that is more inclusive, and that is more comfortable with not only acknowledging emotion, uh, but being ready to take risk, be innovative, and make changes. And I would add to that, as we keep talking uh, about the head and the heart kind of together, in addition to the organizational culture, then I would also add it needs to become part of all of your strategy. So it needs to weave into and throughout your organizational strategic plan, your departmental strategic plan. Just like you have an interpretive plan, you need a community involvement plan. And what does that look like? And so as you get the heart of your organization together, it also has to connect to the head of your organization. So what you're hearing here are some specific themes that really came out as we did the book. Um, questions of institutional culture, the tremendous challenge of changing culture, but the importance of doing that, the importance of these documents, of not just doing the planning, the strategic planning to incorporate the interpretation of slavery and do it well, but getting that into documents, whether it's the mission statement, the strategic plan, community involvement plan, and so on, really helps to institutionalize what's going on. That's, of course, a lesson that applies across the board but is especially tough in an area like this where you may get some resistance and it may not be something people are comfortable resisting on openly at first, but you'll gradually realize not everyone was on board from the very start. Um, I was also pleased to, to hear Linnea, you mentioning Historic Hudson Valley again. Um, we had done a workshop for them through the Tracing Center a while back, and you know it was one issue that really came up is this question of how do you demonstrate credibility when you're doing the interpretation of slavery. Because people can be so dismissive of this topic or so reluctant, it's very easy to, to push it aside. And um, you know, an NEH grant is one great way of achieving that kind of credibility. Um, it's our hope that this book will be another tangible sign that this is a credible thing to do. Um, and that the themes in the book will help to demonstrate credibility from some of the specific ways we want people to be able to interpret slavery. The necessity of doing so in a comprehensive and a conscientious manner. 
the necessity of taking specific steps like ensuring that you bring out the agency of the enslaved, something that has traditionally not been done well at all. Um, we're really hoping to provide a little bit of underpinning, and of course it has to be done in a number of different ways, but on an institutional level this is tremendously important. We've just laid a number of issues on the table, and so I do think this is the perfect time to open this up for a couple of minutes for questions and comments, and then we do want to talk more specifically about issues to do with community involvement. Um, I'm going to need to use the wireless mic for you, but is there someone who would like to start off with, again, a question or a comment? Okay, I'll come to the back there. Uh, thank you. Uh, first question is about the book itself. Is, has the book been published, or is there a release date? Sure. Uh, the book is actually going to be published in December, so Roman and Littlefield at their booth uh, has it in their catalog, and we're talking about it at our exhibition booth, uh, but it's not available for purchase quite yet. Okay. Um, one of my questions, uh, or maybe comment, then a question. Uh, you, in your opening remarks, you alluded to the difficulty of teaching this subject, slavery, uh, in America. Uh, how much of um, thought did you place into uh, maybe the book or even your comments today uh, concerning why that is? In a sense, how we've been conditioned to relate to slavery. Most Americans, and this is not a scientific study or anything, I would, I would say probably understood, and it is probably generationally also, slavery based on popular culture interpretations, um, birth of a nation, gone with the wind, and so forth, interpretations of slavery. So that uh, Monticello and, I'm sorry, I can't remember your site's name, George Mason, um, uh, can be sort of skewed in history. The other thing is the founding fathers have a very exalted position in American history. And any time you try to attach slavery to Jefferson or a deeper examination of slavery to Jefferson or Washington or Mason or wherever, you're really taking a risk, especially if you're a black scholar. I know you're going to talk about race later today, but especially if you're a black scholar. Um, one of my questions is in terms of Monticello and, and some of the comments you made about Jefferson. Uh, and this is a question I've always asked myself in my own work on slavery. Uh, which came first, Jefferson's genius or Jefferson as a slaveholder? Did slavery assist him in becoming a genius? Mm -hmm. This is a fundamental issue of lifestyles right. of, the, of, the, uh, of that time period. Absolutely. Some great points there. Um, one of the programs that we offer at Monticello is a facilitated dialogue program called Waiting on Liberty, um, which I really hope will take off um, in, in terms of popularity um, over the next few years. And the very first question that we ask as people are together is, how did you learn about slavery? And absolutely what you talked about, generational change, but popular culture, instrumental. Um, everything from the sources you cited to Roots um, to 12 Years a Slave now um, are coming up. And again, it's kind of, you know, it's how, how are we exposed in popular society to slavery. And it's interesting to see the generational change as well as in terms of how people learned in school. So you're definitely seeing a generational change there. 
Um, in terms of Jefferson himself, it's interesting. When I'm giving house tours, I typically say there is no way that we can talk about Jefferson and what he did without talking about slavery because they are interlinked. I don't have a good answer for you of what came first, but absolutely. There's no way that he did and accomplished what he did without the, the society of slavery. Um, and I think he recognized that at some points. I, I mean, it would be fascinating to do a full psychological study on Jefferson because then he, he could suppress it. He could, you know, he could do all these really kind of interesting things. Um, but in terms of our interpretation, it has to be fundamental, and that's what we work with with our guides in terms of um, training them and, and having them see. It's not just this man sitting. I mean, he's on top of a mountain. Like, talk about like, being on a pedestal. Um, so, and actually getting visitors to start thinking in a different way of he's not just here alone. Um, how did he maintain this lifestyle? How was he able to do all the things that he did? Thank you. I think you've made some, some great points. I think one thing that we've thought a lot about at Gunston Hall, and in the context of the founders being, quote, exalted, I think one of the things that's important to remember is that beyond the founders, there are exalted people in all our communities, big and small. There are iconic individuals and families, uh, as James has referenced, um, in the Northeast, in the Midwest, everywhere, um, that at some level have an iconic or an exalted status. One of the things that we have just spent a lot of time discussing internally at Gunston Hall is um, the opportunity and the challenge, uh, given the fact that although Mason is a founder, he is not at the same level or anywhere close to the same level in the public consciousness as Washington or Jefferson or Madison, or Monroe, or Patrick Henry, or any number of other Virginians. Um, everybody loves George Mason, they just don't all know it yet. Um, so what that creates is a tremendous opportunity for us to create a new narrative associated with a, quote, founder that is presented uh, without some of the difficult baggage of already being so prominently known in the public consciousness. Now what that means is we have to have a very good understanding of ourselves as an organization. We have to have a very good understanding of what the public perception of Mason is, of what the perception and, and the knowledge and the uh, uh, emotions and motivations the guests are bringing. So I think one of the things that's important to remember as you contemplate this is there's an important need to look internally, but as has been mentioned, um, our ability to create this narrative uh, is fundamentally associated with our understanding of our community um, and building off of that uh, and creating the narrative that we want to create. And I think in talking about community, and to your point as well, it's not just generations of kind of how people have been educated about this topic. You also have to take into account what's happening today. And so when we are talking about economic disparities, when we are talking about educational disparities, when we are talking about the school to prison pipeline, the percentage of people who are in poverty, all of those things a lot of people want to separate out you know, what happened in the past 
has nothing to do with what's happening right now. And so that becomes part of the challenge and part of the understanding of your community in terms of how are people linking or not linking these two things together and what is our responsibility as an institution to bring those up. Sometimes I think as history organizations, we're much more comfortable talking about the past and changing how people have been educated about the past. But if we're not talking about what's currently happening, I think that that leaves a shortfall um, and a missed opportunity. Let me just uh, add to something that Linnea had said um, in talking about Jefferson, that you know everything he was able to accomplish of a positive nature did depend in large part on slavery and his relationship to slavery. By the same token, I think she was getting at this really interesting idea that we can never separate and we shouldn't try to separate the good and the bad in Jefferson. Um, his complicity in slavery and the good things he did for this country are inextricably linked. Um, I feel this very personally when it comes to Jefferson because on the one hand I'm always struck by the fact that Jefferson worked very hard to end the slave trade that my family was involved in. Um, he is the one who personally led the charge to outlaw the U.S. slave trade. And it did, for the most part, eliminate my family's role in the slave trade. Uh, and I think that was a tremendously good thing he did, despite the fact that he had no interest in ending slavery, as far as I can tell. But at the same time, in the same years he was doing this, Jefferson colluded repeatedly with my DeWolf ancestors to circumvent the customs inspection laws and to circumvent our early laws against the very slave trade that he had been interested in abolishing. And these two things about Jefferson are always going to go hand in hand in my mind. Is there another question or comment out there? You got something? Okay. Hi, I'm from North Carolina, and we've been having these discussions for the 20 years that I've been in public history. And uh, it started out my first job at a small historic house museum that was a plantation. And I went to an academic conference, and they wanted us to put the whipping post out, and they wanted us to do all the things to have the material, cultural, the brutality of slavery. I go back to my very conservative board, and they go, oh, no. <laughs> um, so I backed up and became more conservative in my approach and gave them a new narrative. I re-researched the history. The site had been occupied as a museum for over 20, 30 years at that point, and the narrative that was written sort of, yeah, he was a slaveholder, but we want to talk about how great a guy he was because he was the governor and that kind of thing. So uh, I gave them a new narrative that tied the enslaved population on the plantation to an uprising and hanging of 20 slaves that were incorporated in this uprising. And our fellow that was this great guy was the chair of the committee that decided to hang these guys, some of whom were his enslaved workers. So giving the new narrative changed their perspective. And that's one of the things we approach in North Carolina. I work in a statewide organization now. And we make our museums a neutral space to discuss this history. And we work in our institutions to provide the alternative, new, increased narrative to give a persona to, we don't call them slaves, they're enslaved people. We find their names, we find their stories because people can relate to other people better than this thing that's a slave. So if we make it more human and more related to a person, that helps them with the interpretation. So 
that's what we're doing. And I, you know, the self-agency thing is a big deal in North Carolina right now. We're doing a lot with the Underground Railroad and marking our sites. So that's great. And so do more ecology, do more research, and then you'll get people on the board. Thank you. I, I very much love hearing this emphasis on telling personal and individual stories, differentiating people, uh, and as you say, the, the agency of the enslaved is a tremendously important issue. When we talk in the book about the role of historical narrative and the fact that you're really undermining people's historical narratives in this country and trying to replace them, even if you wouldn't have thought their narrative has anything to do with slavery, um, one of the things we talk about is the benefit of making sure that new narrative contains traditional schematic elements, traditional elements of storytelling in this country's history. And so by making the story of the enslaved not merely a dark and very difficult history to think about, even though it is that and that will always be a part of the narrative, um, giving the enslaved agency can also make it a story about freedom about starting from nothing, about making your own opportunities, making things better for future generations. It's a challenging thing to do, especially because it involves things like rebellions. It involves things like trying to help show that emancipation in this country was a process that was largely driven by free and enslaved people of African descent, and not nearly as much by white people as we like to believe. But in doing that, we can actually make stories that will have much broader appeal than we often fear initially. Something that struck me, um, and maybe a little bit of a cautionary tale too, with when you have the great research done, and Monticello, as I mentioned before, has really good research done, um, it's, it can be easy to start feeling that pride in, here's what we've done in interpreting slavery. And I know I do have a great sense of pride for the work that we've done at Monticello and the work that we continue to do. But being cognizant, and this will probably go into community, that you could be in your own kind of isolated field of people going, oh yeah, you're doing really good work there. And then all of a sudden you get out to that broader community and they, they don't see it, they haven't seen it. Um, and it could be because you haven't done the community support from the beginning. But I know that was something that really hit me with that group that I talked with you about. I was like, but, but wait a second, I, you know, I go to conferences and I talk about what we're doing in interpreting slavery. Like, uh, we do such, you know, we, we, we've, we can always do better, but we continue to work about how we do this. And then all of a sudden, it's not out there. It, you know, it's not really out there. So I think we'll touch on a little bit of that of you can start feeling really good about what you're doing, but if you're not really connecting with the communities, maybe you have to keep pushing. Okay. And that's the perfect segue to saying I'd like to have us talk for a little bit about community involvement specifically. Uh, and then we'll see if we can again turn to some questions and comments from all of you. Um, let's start with this, and I'm going to combine a couple of questions here. When it comes to the interpretation of slavery, who is your community? And in particular, what new groups that are not traditionally involved with a site or an institution may be involved? What especially traditionally underrepresented groups perhaps can be involved? And what kind of a role can be played by these groups? And maybe we can even talk some about some of the specific kinds of individuals or organizations that can be brought in on this topic that may not be connected to your site otherwise. I'm guessing you can say something on this topic. <laughs> well, I think my thing for the chapter has been, um, and 
right now, I'll take the opportunity to talk about Rich Cooper, who wrote the chapter with me. Um, so I'll say what our thing has hopefully been for the chapter has been broadening this idea of community, who community is. And I think in the past, a lot of people have solely relied on demographics. Um, we are a community of 3,000 white people and 1,000 black people. You know, we talk to mostly 60-year-olds, those types of demographics. But I think uh, we need to broaden our understanding of who our communities are so that we're not segment segmenting them into academics and school kids and whatever. We're really talking about those who are curious, those who are adamant about something, so that we're breaking them kind of into interest groups as well. Um, and as we are doing that, then I also kind of want to talk about a broadening of audience in terms of the ease with which there is technology and distance learning and all of those things happening right now, social media. Um, there may be people who never ever come to your site and yet they check out your website every once in a while or they have a discussion with you on your blog and so in talking about community um, in our chapter one of the things that I wanted to do is say don't forget about all of those people that that you don't initially see walking through your door. Um, and in addition to that, you have to go after those people, whether you're talking about people who will never actually come to your site but interact anyway, or if you're talking about, um, I'm so focused on getting the African-American community and I've got a community involvement plan for them, right, but you forgot about all of the Latino people who have been moving into your community in the past eight years. I think sometimes we also get so stuck on this black and white issue that we forget everyone else and how important the narrative is to everyone. Um, let me just emphasize that last point that Dina made about you know being careful to think about all the different demographic groups that you may want to bring in. The fact that the story of slavery has to do with a particular demographic group in this country. I would argue two demographic groups in this country, white people and black people, both, and I think you, you really mentioned that. Um, but that it's a story that has parallels, and it's a story that can be of interest to any group in this country, and it's important to be able to cast it in that way. Some of that may be in how you interpret the history of slavery, the themes you emphasize. Some of it may be the question of whether you try to bring out modern themes and discuss contemporary issues at some point at your site or your institution, whether you have community programs that can do that, because those then can help demonstrate for the community the much broader lessons that can be learned from this history. Um, yes, I, I just wanted to add one thing, because as you were talking, it popped into my mind about how many people have had someone come to their site and say, my family didn't come until after World War II, or my family immigrated in, you know, 1890, right? And so that, too, being a kind of a, a way, a defense mechanism to distance yourself, and how do you get past that? And for me, it goes back to that legacy as well. Yes, your family may not have come until 1890, but how were they benefiting from white privilege? How were they benefiting from 
kind of some of the Jim Crow laws that came. So bringing people back into the narrative, I think, is really important. Yeah, I, I think this is tremendously important. I'm constantly talking with audiences about this history, and I am constantly hearing my family's not connected to it because we came in 1890 or whatever the, the answer is. And there are responses to that, and they're powerful ones, and they're ones that pe draw people into the story, and I think that's important. Um, I also want to use one quick example of uh, a c kind of community group because it came up in a number of the case studies in the book, uh, the role that descendants and descendant groups can play whether in the local community or in the broader community. Uh, descendant groups, whether we're talking about descendants of the enslaved, descendants of slave owners, descendants of slave traders, um, we can be vexing to deal with sometimes, but also a real source of strength and support. We highlight a number of case studies where sites have found very vigorous programming coming out of the role of descendant groups. Um, one quick example of another way in which this plays out in the greater Boston area, uh, Royal House uh, is a historic home. The Royals uh, helped uh, found Harvard Law School, for example. They were a very wealthy family, and until fairly recently, it was Royal House. And they did a major reinterpretation, even renaming themselves Royal House and Slave Quarters, uh, and very much pairing the story of the Royals and those who were enslaved on what was a slave plantation outside of Boston, uh, and telling this as a paired story in very sensitive ways. Um, this involved tremendous institutional change, tremendous turnover on the board, as you might imagine, because this was really a 180 in how this site was looked at and the story was understood. But one critical piece of this was that they actually ended up bringing a royal family member, a descendant of the royals, onto the board as a strong supporter of telling that story in that way. And that was a source of institutional strength. It was a remarkable demonstration to the public of what they were doing and how broadly you could think about what they were doing. Okay. Um, we have a little bit of time left here, and so I want to touch briefly on one or two other topics related to community involvement. I wonder if maybe we can say something about what kind of activities uh, a site can think about engaging in. And obviously, sites are going to vary tremendously in what they're interested in doing. But what kind of activities, maybe what kind of new activities, might it be worth doing in the context of interpreting slavery that can help draw interest in the community, bring visitors in the door? Um, what kinds of issues, for example, are worth touching on? I would mentioned contemporary issues before. This subject, interpretation of slavery, can very much in the minds of the public uh, bring up issues that are of great relevance today. How much do sites want to consider doing that? What are the pros and cons? But any kind of activities that sites can engage in. I think for Monticello, the most important thing for us in terms of community development is first to be humble and leave the mountaintop, get into the community itself. But I am being perfectly honest this morning, this is something we still need to work more on. We've done a few um, community engagement uh, sessions, and we put the word out, and who shows up? it's the same people we see show up at our evening lectures. So there's a lot more work that needs to be done in terms, in terms of partnering with the right organizations in Charlottesville um, to, to really start seeing that community engagement happen. But it, it's, humility, I think, is really the main thing that I've, I've taken away the last few years. 
I guess I would just say very briefly that I, I do think this this ties back to what I mentioned before as the concept of organizational culture as well. Are you an inward-looking organization or an outward organization? Th there's any number of activities any of us can do from listening sessions to uh, focus groups to advisory committees. Fundamentally, they're not going to succeed unless your organization is committed to looking externally. Uh, for decades, um, we were a much more internal-looking organization. And if we had tried to do a focus group or create an advisory council on interpreting slavery 20 years ago, we would not even been able to identify who to invite. That's just the fundamental reality. Um, because we weren't looking beyond our gate. Um, so again, I think as you think about these activities, I think equally important, if not more important, is positioning these activities to be successful by ensuring your organization is prepared to look outward and prepared to listen and receive and digest and use the information, not just, not just create an exercise that is meant to demonstrate work engaging community. I think that's very true. I think that, again, often we feel comfortable in saying, I do programs, I know content, I'm going to set this up and people are going to come. And yet what really needs to happen is we need to listen to people. Um, and so as we're talking about specific activities, the biggest thing is to gather your community together and then actually listen to them. And that doesn't mean gather your community together and then say, this is what I'm thinking and I'm going to do it in February. Um, you guys are gonna come, right? So I, I think that kind of grassroots activity really needs to come. Um, and my kind of learning and focus for this is really about being relevant as well. Um, to your question about, you know, are, are we talking about the past? It brings up these connections to what's happening today. How far, you know, do we wanna go? How comfortable is your board? I think that it's essential that we are talking about what's happening today. I was talking to one of my friends last night and he was talking about his daughter who was two and a half um, when 9-11 when happened and his son wasn't born yet, um, his wife was pregnant. And so they went to New York City and they're like, should we go to see the 9-11 museum? And the kids were like, nah. I don't really, I wasn't born, I don't know what's going on, right? And so um, I think that, that kids, but not just kids, people at all levels um, don't remember history. You know, anything from 9-11 back is history. And so how do we get to people where they are right now and then you can tie history to it. Um, and that is often what I found, I think, at the Freedom Center, is that we have so many kids who don't know World War II, don't have no idea about Vietnam, you know, going back civil rights movement, who are you talking about? Let alone, let's talk about slavery and the Underground Railroad. But they do know bullying. They do know courage, cooperation, and perseverance, which were our values. So, so start where, where people are right now, listen to what they're interested in, and then build an activity around that. The other thing that I think um, is the, the concept, the debate that we're always having about quantity and quality, right? 
so many times it's like, you have to have 100 people come to your program or else it won't be worth it. What about the quality of the experience? If you have 20 people who are in a room who are really getting to know themselves and other people in their community, is that worth more than having 100 people listening to a scholar talk about how amazing Jefferson or Mason or whoever is? If you aren't familiar with the National Underground Railroad Freedom Center in Cincinnati, um, it seems to be a wonderful blend of the history of the Underground Railroad and of modern issues. And clearly a tremendous amount of thought was put into how to blend those. Dean is no longer there. Rich is. Um, and presumably could speak more about that if you want, but um, a wonderful way of clearly having thought through how do you make this relevant to people today and do so in a way that's responsible. Um, yeah. I don't know if any of my colleagues from Lincoln's Cottage are here in the audience. I don't see anyone, but if you're looking for another case example of a group that's looking to modern relevancy, they too also have um, some outstanding programs and exhibitions related to modern day slavery. I won't dwell on it, but our case studies did bring out a number of specific instances where sites found activities, ways of involving the community that brought people in the door, that solved some of their challenges, including how do you better include diverse voices and traditionally underrepresented voices at an institution? Um, how do you achieve some measure of accountability for what you're doing? Um, the Tracing Center right now is working with a coalition of partners in, and I'm just going to say, a major American city that is working on a plan to put together a museum about slavery in that state, which would be a first for that state, and that doesn't narrow down the list of states very much, unfortunately. Um, and they have a very detailed and a very thoughtful plan for how to include a variety of public and community programs, make it a community space, have programs not just to educate the public about these issues and their relevance today, but to have uh, live performances and forums and anti-racism programs and a whole host of things that's really very well thought through and crafted. And yet as I sit around the planning table, I have said repeatedly in various ways, we're still not involving the community in talking about what this might become. And I've started to say more and more bluntly, we're all white around this table. You keep telling me you very much want to make the community a part of this, and you include, and they're very clear, you know, the African-American community, Asian and Latino groups and so forth, and they want to make all different kinds of groups with a stake in the community a part of this, but they're really struggling to figure out how to do that. It's clearly a tremendous challenge. Uh, that said, we're uh, pretty much out of time. I'd like to see if there's a question or comment or two from the audience that we can use to wrap this up. It looks like we've got someone maybe right down there. Right there. Could, could, okay. Um, I, I'm wondering about how um, your, you know, your interpretation is going to be shaped after the events of the past month and a half. Um, you know, to me, and I, I mean, I've done a lot of work on slavery and I've done some consulting with historic house museums. I'm reading Edward Baptist's book now. I mean, to me, and if you read ba Edward Baptist's book, you're rather generous portrayal of Jefferson and the ending of the slave trade might change. Um, but uh, the, you know, to me, it seems as if one of the legacies of slavery is fear. 
that it was it was an institution that instilled fear on all of the people who participated in it. Uh, and I mean, you see this in so many numerous ways. And I'm, I'm really thinking that in some ways, you know, if you're thinking about how to answer what, you know, what does this mean to somebody like me whose grandparents came, you know, from Ireland in, in, the, in the 20th century, is, is we did inherit a, a society and culture of fear. And all of us are, are part of it. And, you know, we really have to examine this now. I mean, it's incumbent upon us. If people are reacting, it's, it, if, if, you know, Malcolm Gladwell is right that the Amado Diallo shooting was an instance where people just reacted and it wasn't a racist act, then we have to look at where this fear came from. Yeah. So that's my comment. Is there someone who'd like to comment on that? I think it, to that point, um, it is a lot about fear. And that kind of wraps us all the way back to the beginning of the conversation about the challenges that we have knowing yourself, knowing your community, um, and you know, just throwing out there, here are all of the things that I'm worried about. Here are all of the things that I'm afraid of. And as we talk about changing our cultures as institutions, we also then, kind of to the point of this session, need to start thinking about how we change the culture of our community so that it isn't one that is based on fear, so that isn't one that's based on, you know, I, I did this by myself and everyone else can pull themselves up too. You know, we need to kind of get out of that. And so it all goes back to the beginning of our conversation with the perceptions that we have that we may not even recognize that we have right now. All right. I think that's a good note to close on. And for interest of time, we do need to end. Um, thank you very much for coming this morning. Thank you very much to those who've been speaking here. Um, if you'd like to talk more with us, please don't hesitate to come up. You can also find Kristen Gallus and me at uh, the Tracing Center booth in the exhibit hall if you'd like to do that. And we have that panel on uh, racial identity and interpretation at 1.30. So thank you very much.